Let's be honest, that game was a great big pile of shit, uh, to borrow a reference from Jurassic Park. So I'm going to go straight to the guests here. We're going to welcome in Harmon Dial and Tony Ferrari, the Tony Ferrari, as his Twitter handle says. <laughs> How's it going, guys? Oh, Pretty it's good. good. Yeah, it's good. After that uh, game, I'm almost glad it's over. I'm very glad it's over. <laughs> that was a huge waste of my night, to be honest with you all. You know what the best thing about that game was? Was I was watching the first period with my oldest, and he copied my shirt and wanted to draw the logo for the show, but also drew, I don't know if you, no, too light, too much bright light. Look, there, uh, uh, mm, there, maybe. <laughs> he drew the little game guy and then a rainbow over top and some spring flowers over here just is it springtime huh? what's better that art skills than me yeah seriously better than me he's getting pretty good four and a half years old so that was the highlight of the game for me frankly uh it was not a very entertaining one i will say one guy that i was pretty impressed with tonight like on and off was sam montembeau who's again been put in a tough situation but Weirdly, I think he stopped every single one of the best chances that the Blue Jackets had tonight and allowed five goals on like either bad bounces or just not that great of chances. <laughs> it was a weird night for him. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially early in the first half of the game, I just felt Columbus came out really strong and they were quick to pucks. I thought they were fast. I really think that they, despite, uh, I, I don't know what the stats say after that kind of a game, but in terms of quality chances, I just felt like Columbus really came hard at the Canadians early. And especially for the first half of the game, it felt like Montembeau was really solid and, and kind of gave them a chance to was, I think round about the midway point of the second was he was still kind of keeping them alive. And then obviously the dam started to, to break. And at that point it was, um, it was clear that it was not going to be enough, but I think that was more a product of the Canadians just never got going offensively, never gave uh, Columbus a real push because otherwise I think in the first half of the game, especially the Montembeau was really sharp. I thought he made a number of key saves and, Columbus was coming at uh, the Canadians all night off the rush too. So um, I thought, uh, I, again, it, it was kind of a weird game because like you kind of said, he, he stopped a lot of glorious chances and yet there were sometimes weird bounces that got by and, and, and other, uh, other ones um, like the, like the first Roslovic goal yeah. uh, where it, it, it's like you expect him to stop that one, but I, I think it's also a really tough, as you kind of noted, I think it's a really tough situation for a goaltender to be in when there's such a chaotic environment in front of you. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, the 5-1 scoreline doesn't look pretty, but really he was the only reason they even had a chance in the first half of the game, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm with you there. And, you know, as much as the second Roslovich goal was, you know, it's a cross-crease pass and like a tap-in kind of thing, Going off the shaft of his stick, two of the weirdest goals I've seen this season from a guy who, like, after the game, you look at the sat line, and you're like, oh, man, this guy must have been, like, hot tonight. And he had his chances, but it seemed like <laughs> the touches that he had were not actually that great. They just happened to go in. Yeah, it was a really interesting night for him because he's a guy that's been pretty good for Columbus this year. And 
I think him and Patrick Line work really well together. And you, you've seen Patrick Line kind of factor in on both of his goals, especially that second one where he just threw it at the net, doing what Patrick Line does. Who, man, he again, he just has these games every once in a while where you're like, man, if he could do this consistently, like Patrick Line could be a real, real big star in this league. But it's been an up and down year for him. But yeah, it was a weird game. Montembeau, like, Harmon was saying was really, really good in the first half, making a ton of really like 10 bell saves. And as you noted, Andrew, it was kind of goofy goals going in a tip in from Cole Sillinger late in the game. And, and then it kind of went, went out from there and it wasn't really Montreal in the game at all. Like I said, I was saying to you before the, the stream that it almost felt like the first uh, Martin St. Louis game that I've watched with the Canadians where it felt like that early season Habs team. And I, I don't know if they're just kind of getting tired towards the end of the year or what it is, but yeah, it was a little bit of a depressing games from a Habs point of view. Yeah, that's there was a few people that I was talking to recently. Uh, I actually recorded the Hockey Inside Out show this morning with uh, uh, Stu Cowan wasn't on it, but uh, Dan Robertson, the voice of the Habs on the radio here, and I believe he also does some TSN games, and uh, Rick Green, uh, former Montreal Canadian, and Julian McKenzie, and they were kind of talking about that whole situation with the Canadians and what's gone on that things just, they just don't seem to have that same pop that they had uh once Martin St. Louis first took over. And part of that, I think, is just the loss of players to the trade deadline. You know, they they did lose a lot of depth, but at the same time, it's also the end of the season, and you can see guys kind of conserving, not wanting to go into the offseason injured, right? So I don't think there's anyone out there right now who's giving that, like, 110%, because what are they really fighting for? Yeah, I think it's always an interesting time of year, um, especially because in Vancouver, I've kind of had uh, that perspective for a while in, in a lot of the past rebuilding seasons. And you can tell that by the time it gets to around late March, early April, April, if you really have no chance, it can be tough to get up for those games. It's not, and it's not that you lack effort. It's that extra desperation or that extra intensity sometimes where when you have a motivating factor, like um, the playoffs to play for uh, it can, it can give you extra energy. It can give you extra life because you think about the physical grind of an 82 game season and all the travel that comes with it, the bumps and bruises, and it just becomes such a mental slog too, especially as you kind of noted, when you see, um, so many pieces depart at the deadline, like Toffoli, of course, and Sherrod and, and Kulak. Uh, it, uh, it, it's hard to kind of get up for the games the same way as you might have at the start of the season, especially because you mentioned that they had the coaching bump with Marty St. Louis. I think guys at that, at that point are also really excited uh, for something new and to make a first impression on a coach. But then again, those things can sometimes wear off too. And, and now when you only have, uh, you know, less than a dozen games or so left in the season, uh, it can be a real mental battle. And that's where, you know, Columbus is obviously kind of in a similar spot. And, and so, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't as big of a factor as, as it may have been against a, a different sort of team, but it just felt like Columbus was, especially early, I thought in the first period, just able to win every puck in the offensive zone. And yeah. um, it just felt like the Canadiens were a little bit slow, half a step behind. Uh, and you could kind of see that they were just lacking jump, lacking some energy. Yeah. And I think there's, there's sometimes in an 82 game schedule where you just have a game like that. But I think because of the way that this team played the first 45 games of the year, 
under Dominique Ducharme when they do have a game like that under St. Louis, which they've had maybe two games like that. This one and against Carolina, where whereas Carolina, I think, just played essentially a perfect game against Montreal and absolutely dominated the crap out of them. This was a game where if the Canadians had that energy, they might have been able to turn things around on the Blue Jackets at least a little bit and made it close. But because of that first half of the season, everyone's like, oh, God, here we go again. You know, <laughs> I, I understand that feeling, but uh, it, it's a it's an easy one to kind of write off and move on from. I will talk about two more things from this game, and then we're going to start talking about uh, some prospects and going forward in the future and team building and all that stuff, because we've got Tony here to bring the prospect information. We've got Harmon here to talk about, you know, rebuilding teams because he's seeing the same thing or a similar thing happening in Vancouver with both teams gutting their front office, gutting their coaching staff. So it's interesting to see two Canadian teams on opposite sides of the end of the country here going through a similar situation. But before we go off the game, I got to say uh, Ryan Paling had, the play of the game for the Montreal Canadiens. And it wasn't his goal. It was that back check on the power play where Hoffman gave the puck away, which we're going to talk about Hoffman after that because it's the worst thing about the game. <laughs> and just the way he chased it down, uh, uh, I was shocked that he was actually able to catch up to that play and kill it. Yeah, it was interesting because I don't look I don't look at Paling as a guy that has that burner speed that's really no. going to be able to do that and, and catch those plays consistently. But he made a really nice play on that play and he, he made a couple other really nice defensive plays today. I thought his position was really good. And I, I don't think Paling's ever going to be that that guy that scored the four goals in that first game against Toronto ever again. But he, he's going to be a good solid middle six center. I think he can play in the, that on that third line pretty consistently and, and bring that defensive element and then chip in with a goal here and there kind of in a big moment. And I feel like every time I, I'm praising Paling, it's a, it's in a losing effort because there hasn't been a ton of winning this year. But yeah, like like you said, going kind of even looking back at the the team standings from where they're at now, like even where they're at now, like with the winning that they've done under St. Louis, they're still second last in the league, one point ahead of the Coyotes, one point behind uh, Seattle, and then there's a six point gap between the next team. So even even like you said, the motivation to not really get there isn't there, but. Paling had a really good game, and you want to see that from guys like that. And Suzuki also chased down a uh, play on the on the uh, power play as well in a similar way. And you see guys like that putting in effort, and you you want that from the rest of the team. But like you said, it just wasn't really there. Yeah, it was uh, not a great game for the power play. We'll say that, and <laughs> and not a great game for Mike Hoffman as well. Because late lately, every single game, I get texts and tweets at me all game long about every five to ten minutes in real time of just like, why is this guy on the team? <laughs> and I understand it. Cause uh, he's the only player I've ever seen who passes to nobody like five, six times a game. It's, it's wild how much this guy does that. And I, I don't know what's wrong with him because I know that he's a one dimensional player. Like everybody knows that, but in the past, He's brought that one dimension and he just hasn't been able to do that this year. He's had like one little hot streak. And I know he got an assist on the goal tonight, a, a secondary assist, but that was just by virtue of playing on the point. I don't think Chris Weidman or anybody else would make a different play than just the little pass to Suzuki to start that up. I, I don't know what the Canadians are going to do with this guy because he's got two more years left. If he plays like this next year, I don't think there's any other option but to buy him out. 
Yeah. And the thing with Hoffman too, is it's not just that he's a one dimensional player and that all the only thing he really brings to the table is scoring, but where he really shines is the power play. Right. And that's where he needs to deliver top level value because otherwise, even when you factor in his goal scoring ability at five on five over the last few seasons, he hasn't, the defensive shortcomings outweigh the net positive that he delivers offensively. And so with Hoffman, I remember back in the day from the right circle, especially in in Florida, he would be one of the most deadly accurate shooters from the right flank. And it was just automatic. And it's been interesting to see, like, I I was surprised because it's been, uh, it's been a while since I've sort of seen him in a power play, different power play setting. and And it just, he looked like a shadow of his former self and in your head, it's, it's, it's interesting because hypothetically you, um, you know, going into the season might've thought, well, potentially Caulfield on one flank uh, Hoffman on the other, like you've got two potentially elite shooters right there. Um, Now the other pieces, you might not have enough to have a real top end power play, but you figure that could at least be the backbone of say a league average man advantage unit. And, and yet that just hasn't come to fruition. So with Hoffman, I, I really think they need to figure out and, and rebuild his, his confidence um, on the man advantage because he kind of is what he is at five on five. He's going to be a defensive liability. He's going to turn the puck over. Um, he's not a particularly intelligent player, um, either with or without the puck. He does one thing really well, and that's shoot it really hard and, and beat goaltenders consistently. And that really starts on the power place. It, it, it his value really lies on special teams. So that has to be the number one priority for the Canadians in terms of restoring his value is how do we get him back um, productive and confident on power play? Yeah. And I wonder if that's this, like the, the worry that the Canadians have in getting something for Hoffman is, is it worth it to put Hoffman in the ideal spot on the power play for him to build his value when you're in order to do that, you're probably taking Caulfield out of that same spot because they're both, I believe, right-handed shots, right? Uh, I believe Mike Hoffman is. I a thought, ho- shot. oh, he is. I thought he might have been a lefty. Uh, no, you're right. He shoots left. So I guess okay, it's like yeah. it's Suzuki. That's what I was thinking, like you could have him on opposite. Of course, you're. I think you'd be displacing Suzuki then. Yeah, that's Suzuki, um, right? Which is, yeah, it's a bit of a problem. But that's where Hoffman has has typically been a really good shooter from is that right flank and. Um, I mean, on paper, it sounds promising. So, um, I mean, I guess it sort of depends on how the Canadians power play goes over the balance of the season. And if you want to experiment or tinker, well, they're yeah, second think- last, so there's not much worse that they could. <laughs> yeah. I think one thing I noticed today, especially with Hoffman is they ask him to carry the puck a lot on the power play in transition, yeah. whether it's up the ice and he just doesn't have that skill in his repertoire. Like that's not his game. He needs to be off the puck in that situation and kind of already up ice, able to kind of walk into the zone and hide in the shadows a bit, creep into space and then take advantage of that shot. Like Harmon was saying, having him carry the puck, like there's, I think two or three times where he just gave the puck away on a, a needless spin pass or something goofy that he was trying to do. And, He's just not that guy in, on the power play. So get him, get him in a position that's comfortable for him. Let him kind of stay in the weeds until he needs to pounce into space and, and then use that shot. But finding a spot for him on the power play is definitely going to be need- needed because this is a guy that hasn't scored 30 in a few years now. And he's a guy that that's what his calling card is because he doesn't bring much else. So 11 goals on the year this year isn't really uh, justifying that four and a half million for the next couple of years too. Yeah, it, it's a tough one. I feel like the Canadians put him up on that top spot because he's a guy that can score from distance 
but you just have so much responsibility in distributing the puck I, at the top yeah. there. And he, yeah. uh, this game, it's not an isolated thing, right? Like it's so clear that he can't be trusted to distribute that puck consistently. It, it's even when he has time and space and the pass is relatively simple, he just manages to miss those like half width of the ice passes by like five feet and put guys in really treacherous situations in terms of their defensive positioning. And it just doesn't make sense. I love that St. Louis and his coaching staff are trying a five forward power play, but they just don't have the right players to make that five forward power play work. And that's the thing is with where they are in the building process, which is the very beginning. That's fine. It's cool. They're trying it. It's just not working. Yeah. And like you kind of alluded to, to me, Hoffman's always been a catch and release shooter. Like that's his role. I, yeah. I, I would never want him handling the puck too much. I don't want the puck on his stick too long. Um, he's, he, he should just be standing and stand and deliver uh, and shoot and, and kind of to, to borrow almost an NBA analogy, just be the guy in the corner, corner three spot. Yeah who just gets the ball, shoots it. That's all you want. And like you kind of mentioned, when you're at the top at, the, at that point, you've got to be able to walk the line. You've got to be able to make the right reads, make the right decisions. You've got to be a good passer and you've got to really carry the puck a lot. And it's also when you're the last man back there, if you turn the puck over, it's, it's an odd man break going back the other way. So it's a really high leverage spot. And it's not even one that forwards are accustomed to playing. Like when would Hoffman have ever had that sort of, experience manning the point uh on uh, on the power play before in his career he he's in a completely foreign spot playing i think to his some of his weaknesses rather to his strengths so um you're right it, it just definitely isn't working although like like you mentioned i love that they are at least experimenting with different things and um i always love seeing you know when you're at when, when you're at this point in the season and the games don't really matter um, to try new things and to innovate and maybe something clicks and you can, you can apply to next season, something crazy that you might not want to try game one of a, a game, one of a new season when it's a new chapter. Um, but yeah, I think this is an experiment that isn't really working in its uh, existing uh, structure. Yeah. yeah and to that point, to that point though, I was going to say, we were talking about Suzuki being displaced from the wing. He's a guy that I think has that dynamic ability that can play up top yeah. a little bit. You look at him and I like, this is a weird comparison, but you almost envision him in a Quinn Hughes type role up top where he's able to distribute and, and kind of push the puck to the sides, push the puck to the guys. And then when he gets that lane, he can move in and take the shot from there and hope for a deflection in front. You got crowd in front with the power play. So I think moving him to the point would be a good idea. Cause like, like you guys said, the, the five man power play is something fun to try, especially at this point. Yeah. I think the main thing that they're worried about with Suzuki is like, he is the power play. Right. Yeah. Like the gap between him and the next best player on the Canadians power play unit is uh, I think seven points. And that's <laughs> Cole Caulfield. Who's done almost all of that under St. Louis because he just didn't get much power play time under Ducharme. And then after that, surprisingly is Mike Hoffman. But I think a lot of that is secondary <laughs> assists. So we'll have to what, look that up afterwards. But uh, even like Chris Weidman, who's been the point man for most of the season only has 11 power play points. Like the power play just, is not very good overall. All right, let's move on to some more fun topics because that game was just not fun. Unless you're a Columbus Blue Jackets fan, in which case, you know, welcome. We welcome you to the show. There's probably a couple of you at the very least, but uh, your team did much better 
this <laughs> in this one than we did. But we're not going to talk about them that much. I, I apologize for that. I did get a special request from uh, a couple people on Twitter for Tony. Do you have any knowledge of the David Juracek injury situation? It's tough because he was named to the world uh, the world championship roster, if I'm not mistaken. But his leg injury that he sustained earlier this year kind of it was supposed to kind of keep him out the rest of the way. And maybe he kind of comes in towards the end of the year. The world championship was kind of like the hopeful end of things. So we'll have to see when the world championship rolls around. But if he's there, I think all he's going to do is boost his draft stock because he's a guy that I think a lot of people were high on early in the year. And the injury hasn't really brought him down many boards because people haven't really been enthralled with a lot of other players in this draft class, especially defensemen. So he's still up high on a lot of the boards. So he's definitely a guy worth watching, especially if he does come back for that world championship. Yeah, there was a lot of questions during the this game that I was fielding from Canadians fans about, you know, like the future of this team, and they basically have two very clear holes organizationally, right? Uh, one of them is defensemen in general, like a top four defenseman. Caden Gooley is the only guy I think they they have that projects comfortably within that top top four range, right? Like, I think everybody's enjoyed what uh, Jordan Harris has brought. So far, uh, I think he's actually been better than expected, honestly, uh, after talking to a few people and kind of tempering expectations a little bit. Justin Barron, I think, has good potential, but you're hope hoping he can be a number four, right? That's like his top ceiling. So there's guys like Juracek to look at, and then the Canadians need a one-two center to, to pair with Suzuki because I think Christian Dvorak, whether he's a long-term fit or not, is most comfortable in a three C role. Like if you, if your three C is Christian Dvorak and you've got two guys considerably better than Christian Dvorak, you're probably a pretty good team. That's not, not too bad. So the question that I got asked is the Canadians are second last in the league right now. First or first last, the last team in this draft has a very high chance of getting the first overall pick. If the Canadians can't draft Shane Wright and Tony Ferrari is head of scouting for the Montreal Canadiens, do you try to address the center hole because it's harder to find that player? Or do you look at the wealth of top end defensemen available in this draft and go that way? Well, I'll channel my inner bald, bald man energy with the Kent Hughes uh, situation they've got going on there. And uh, no, I, I go, I go center here, honestly, because not only is it, is there a center worth taking here, but I think he's considerably better than any of the defensemen in this draft. And that's Logan Cooley. If you can't get Shane, right. I think Logan Cooley does a lot of things really, really well. He's a good two way center. Uh, he's got a lot of the same aspects as right, but he does have a little bit of a flashier higher end. Uh, uh, where you can kind of get some plays with Logan Cooley where you're like, oh, wow, like he just kind of dangled a dude. Whereas Shane Wright is more of that methodical, tactical, calculated player where he has the skill to do it. He just doesn't have to do it very often because he's always in the right position. So uh, Logan Cooley's a, a pretty decent consolation prize in this year's draft if you're drafting second overall. And yeah, I, I do think he's better than any of the kind of defensemen uh, up in the board because the, the next defenseman I have on my board is David Yurchek, who we just kind of talked about. And he's coming off a pretty long injury, so you don't know exactly how badly that affected him. So with a with a big world championship, maybe he kind of gets into that conversation at number two. But right now, for me, that top two is kind of pretty secure with Shane Wright and then Logan Cooley. All right. We had dissenting opinions, I believe, from uh, when we had Mitch Brown and David St. Louis on. I think they were both pretty high on Juracek. I think St. Louis really likes the uh, 
the defensive D, uh, not Marty, David St. Louis. So d- yeah. different St. Louis, we'll, we'll say there. Now, uh, over to Harmon a little bit. The Vancouver Canucks are in a somewhat similar position to the Montreal Canadiens, but I think they have more pieces of the contending team that they want to be signed up. Their biggest thing is probably, you know, cap flexibility, right? What What kind of challenges do you see them facing going forward, trying to build a contender versus what the Canadians are facing. Yeah, I think it's for, for the Canucks, it's one of figuring out what their timeline is. And, and that's at least one of the good things about the Canadians is they are in a different spot where their timeline is pretty clear and there's a cohesion there. And I think what went, what went wrong with the Canucks, which I think serves as a good cautionary tale, a cautionary tale uh, for the Canadians is the Canucks just, they accelerated too quickly. And what I mean by that is they got their franchise center in Elias Pedersen. They um, got their number one defenseman in Quinn Hughes. And then they thought, great, we're ready to contend. Let's try and go all in to make the playoffs. And that's where you had moves like signing Tyler Myers. And that's where um, they sort of made these aggressive moves. Obviously some of them worked out like trading for JT Miller. Uh, but even then, Miller is a player who you look at now and he may not fit with the Canucks' timeline because he's one hell of a player. He's He's been unbelievable for them, their best forward, but he's only got a year left on his contract and then he's a UFA. The Canucks aren't going to be ready to contend by the time his contract expires. So now the, now the Canucks, they either have to deal him or sign him at uh, eight and a half or, or million dollars a year or, or, or in that sort of range on a long-term extension, which just is a really tough decision to make. So when you look at the Canucks' situation, they, I think, even in even in off-seasons past, went out and signed the likes of Beagle and Roussel, and uh, they sort of made all a lot of these moves where they mortgaged future cap flexibility and, and traded away draft picks in, in order to accelerate the process. And that's where now the Canucks are in a bit of a mushy middle where they have a lot of um, a lot of their foundation is set, but they're still not nearly deep enough to be credible, uh, to be a credible top 10 team. And that's where now the team might have to take a step back in order to take two steps forward. When you look at decisions with guys like Miller and looking at even does a Brock Besser fit in the timeline. And so now when you look at the Canadiens, yeah, their path to contention is a lot longer and they obviously have some problematic contracts on the books as well, but they at least have the advantage of almost a clean slate to work with where you look at the number of draft picks that they have coming up in the next couple of years. Um, they're going to be picking a lot in the top three rounds, which is something Vancouver didn't do. Even when they were rebuilding, they treated away more draft picks than they acquired and so I think for can't use in the Canadians, it's just, I would, I think number one is just preaching patience, continuing the stockpile as, as many future assets as you can, and kind of understanding that this might be a painful uh, process in the beginning, but then you look at what a team like Detroit has been, has been able to benefit from. And yeah, they're still a long ways away from being a legit contender, but the Red Wings are at least starting to see some of the fruits of their labor. You've got, they've got two guys in, in Satter and Raymond, um, that have immediately come onto the scene and, and been excellent pieces. And we all, we all can kind of look at Detroit and say, they're not there yet, but they've got a really exciting future. They've got cornerstone pieces everywhere. And I think that just kind of has to be the priority for Montreal is um, you have to focus on drafting and developing. And once you sign those 
cornerstone pieces, you have to kind of be honest with yourself about when is the, when is the appropriate time to push your chips in? Because I think that's a mistake Vancouver made. Um, and with Montreal, I think the biggest question I just have is um, with respect to, and I know it doesn't necessarily affect uh, the rebuild in the long run a ton, but looking at the futures for the likes of Carey Price or, or Brendan Gallagher and um, the Canadians have a lot of money tied up uh, long-term. And, and so that's, that's perhaps a bit of a complicating factor as they try and, uh, and rebuild. But I think in, in, in bringing in the pieces uh, or in the future assets that they've brought in, especially at the deadline, um, I think they've at least got a good start on it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad that you brought this up because Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon have both kind of hinted that they would be active in the free agent market this summer. And I think a lot of people see that as, you know, the possibility that they're going to make a big splash signing and try to accelerate this rebuild in, a sa- in the same way that Vancouver did. I'm wondering if it's more along the lines of signing players as stopgap measures, right? I look at a guy like Vincent Trocek in Carolina, who's a UFA and will not have a home there because he's going to demand more money. Signing a guy like that for like, two years at a ton of money because you're going to have a ton of cap space would probably make him happy because he's raking in the cash and give him a place to basically earn another big contract. If he's not offered a long-term contract somewhere, there's that kind of situation that could uh, develop, but there's definitely a, a possibility because of carry prices stature in this market that when he comes back this year, because his wife kind of spilled the beans on her little newsletter that she does that went around social media today, that he will be playing games this year. It sounds like it's going to be very soon. And the Canadians did just clear enough cap space to activate him off of LTIR uh, this afternoon, I believe. So my theory is that that happens this weekend on Saturday, because it's the last Saturday home game of the season. And we all know that Carey Price is Mr. Saturday night, but that's purely speculation. On my part, I have no insider information whatsoever, but because of Carey Price's stature in this market, there might be pressure to be competitive while he's still around. And I think that's something that this management group is going to have to prove that they don't need to do that, right? Like, there seems to be a plan that's relatively clear based on the trades they made this year that they acquired players in the 2021 age range along with high-end draft picks so you're looking at like maybe a two-year uh like two-year window where players start trickling into the nhl and some make it some don't and then four or five years from now players that you drafted and developed yourself start making it into the nhl so if if the plan is to be let's say a a fringe playoff team and start getting your feet wet in the playoffs two years from now, but not going all in. I think everyone would be relatively okay with that as long as they get a high end draft pick next year. But if it's to go all in two years from now, that would be, it would kind of kill all the hope that uh, this new regime has generated for themselves in this honeymoon period. Yeah, and I think that we've seen so much hope, like you mentioned. I think the deadline, everyone was pretty pretty complimentary of Ken Hughes' work. I think, like you mentioned, he got these young player with a prospect and, and, and oftentimes uh, just a couple of little pieces here and there. So it's he's doing a lot of that work that Harmon said where he's stockpiling draft picks. Looking at their draft picks this year, they've got so many going up, like 
two in the first, two in the second, uh, two, three in the third, three in the fourth. Next year, they've got a couple again. Like it, it, you're seeing them build up that stockpile of draft picks. Doing that and hoping that you can kind of do those stopgap players. Like you said, maybe they're a fringe playoff team next year. Maybe they're kind of flipping up near, in that fifth spot in the division, almost challenging, but not really ever getting there. But I really hope they don't kind of rush things the way kind of Vancouver did. The, the way, like Harmon said, accelerating the rebuild, kind of getting ahead of yourselves, especially I thought with Vancouver when they had that play in in the bubble where they, they had that series where they won, they beat Vegas. Every, everyone was super pumped about this team. And then there was some kind of weird moves in the offseason and just kind of everything kind of collapsed in on itself from there. So Montreal avoiding that's going to be a big deal for them. And, and like you said, Andrew, like maybe the, the activity and free agencies, the the Toronto style, and I know Montreal fans are going to love hearing that, but getting the Andre Kashas, getting the Michael Bunting, someone that is somewhat young, someone in their mid-20s that you can kind of grab and, I mean, maybe if you get Michael Bunting, you get a rookie of the year candidate as a 26 year old. So uh, it, it's those kind of moves that I, I kind of see uh, Kent Hughes doing in the off season. I, I really certainly hope, unless he's going for Patrice Bergeron or something ridiculous, like some of the conspiracy theory people like want, want to talk about on Twitter, you, you don't go big game hunting this summer. Yeah. I'm the one who started the Patrice Bergeron. Yeah, oh, things. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Which is completely fabricated. Well, not the fact that he's, Ken Hughes was his agent, but I don't <laughs> think Patrice Bergeron would actually be interested in going to a rebuilding team. No. If Patrice Bergeron had started to fall off, maybe. But the fact is, this year, he's, he's still posting freaking bonkers defensive numbers, and the offense is still there for him. He is something else. Like, it's such a shame that he's been a Bruin his whole career. Because I want to like him so much more than I do. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sarah, I mentioned that uh, George LaRock mentioned that the plan is for Price to play on Friday. Now, LaRock sometimes has some insider information from the Canadians and sometimes has a tendency to make things up. So we'll see if he's right. I know mine is just speculation, but we'll see. Um, what else was I going to say? Uh, the Vancouver Canucks, I mean, obviously they're going to have to shed some salary. Uh, heading into next season. The Canadians are going to have to do so as well. But like Harmon said, it seems like the Canadians are in a little bit of a more relaxed situation, whereas the Canucks kind of have to start to compete right away, both to satisfy Elias Pettersson on that short-term deal and also make hay while their young stars are in their prime years. But I have to say, I really like the Canucks forward group. Like, I, I really, really like it. When I heard that there was a possibility they might move Connor Garland, I was a little bit flabbergasted because I feel like he's on a sweetheart deal as well. But I I think Harmon's right that they might have to take a step back to get to take a step forward or two steps forward in the next couple of seasons. Yeah, I, I think their, their back end just isn't good enough. They don't have anything... Um, beyond Quinn Hughes, obviously Oliver Ekman Larson has had a, a solid bounce back season, but he's, he's also making seven and a quarter million forever and he's around 30 years old. So that's uh, a ticking time bomb in terms of the contract there. And, uh, they, um, back end just isn't good enough. And because of Miller, you look at this core group offensively, right? You've got Miller. Uh, his contract expires. He's a UFA at the end of next season. Horvath's UFA at the end of next season. Besser's an RFA at the end of this season with a $7.5 million qualifying offer. The challenge here is that Vancouver's forward group is also at the top end becoming significantly more expensive. Uh, 
And so that's, that's a big, big sort of issue that the club has to deal with. And the problem is just that they don't have flexibility to improve, right? Because you look at the Canucks on paper right now and you can see a team that is middling on paper and you, you can sort of convince yourself that, all right, like if we just add a, a few pieces here and there, that, that maybe we can be really good. And the problem is just that they a, have no cap flexibility. There's nothing coming in the prospect pipeline. Uh, and they have no draft picks that they can trade away because they haven't drafted. They've, uh, they haven't had a first round pick in two years. So for that reason, it's, they've got nothing to help them improve is the point. They're, they're a team that's, that lacks flexibility. They're rigid. They're stuck where they are unless they take a step back. And that's why I've, I'm so, when I look at Montreal's situation, and I, and I understand it, given, given Carey Price's, uh, everything he's done for this franchise, everything he's done for the city, but I think it would be a mistake if you get ahead of yourselves and start um, accelerating things in a couple of years, especially because, look, I love, uh, I love Cole Caulfield. I, I love Nick Suzuki. But if I'm being totally honest with you guys, I think to win a Stanley Cup, you're going to need forwards better than Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield. Like you're not, I don't think you're going to win a Stanley Cup with Nick Suzuki as your, as your best forward, let's say. And I really can't overstate how much I love Nick Suzuki, how complete his game is, how smart he is, um, how intelligent. And I think there's more to unlock in his game, but they don't like they, they haven't found their superstar yet. And whether it's up front, whether it's on the back end. um, And so to me, they just lack those franchise pieces. Like even the Canucks, yeah, Lise Pedersen has has had a down season, but um, you you have at least a defenseman in, in, in Quinn Hughes, who, you know, um, is one of the best in the game. Thatcher Demko is one of the best young goalies in the NHL, and he's on a sweetheart deal. There, at least in 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 that situation, you have some of your cornerstone pieces, and I feel like there aren't enough of those cornerstone pieces to where there's a lot of work to be done uh, with Montreal. Where again, if they stick to the process, if they just if they draft well with the abundance of picks they have, they'll be fine. If they they stay if they're committed to the process. I mean, again, I bring up the Detroit example. They had nothing. And and now look yeah. at the superstar pieces that they have. So if you stick with it, if you're patient, you are going to be able to turn it around. And uh, I am a big, I should also note, I'm a big fan of Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon and and, and just the overall thought, thought process is and, and everything I've heard from them so far. Um, but they've got to stick to the plan. They can't veer off of it and do what Vancouver did. Yeah, yeah, and I think w- one thing I wanted to notice to note too on that Detroit example is when you look watch Detroit a few years back when they really kind of started getting missing the playoffs and, and going into a little bit of a rebuild when when Ken Holland was there, they looked at, at guys like Dylan Larkin and Anthony Mantha and, and guys like that, and they were like, "These can be our guys. These can be our guys moving forward." But they weren't really able to be those high end guys. So I think now that Detroit's got a guy like Mort Sider coming in who looks like a true superstar, a guy like Lucas Raymond who can be looks like he could be a star winger, and they've got guys like Edvinson on the way, I think now they're getting out of that stage that Montreal's kind of at right now. I think Montreal, if they look at their roster and go, well, we just got to wait for Caulfield to develop a little bit more. We got to wait for Suzuki to develop a little bit more. You'll have really good players, but you don't have that great player like Harmon was saying. I think that's the thing that uh, some teams kind of fool themselves into thinking that some of the players that just because they're top prospects doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be the, the star player on that team. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that's 
kind of the crossroads that the Canadians are at right now. Is it do they try to swing big on getting like a, a superstar to be the guy ahead of Suzuki, or do they try to get a guy who's say like as good as Suzuki but maybe costs less? And then they build out like, do they want a, a first, second, third line or three second lines? Because that that's something that most teams haven't been able to accomplish very well, especially in the cap era, right? Is you end up overpaying your guys for being the top guy on your team, as opposed to, are they really a top guy? And I know a lot of people were upset with how much Suzuki got in the off season, but like, frankly, he got second line center money. That's, that's what that is, you know, especially in today's game. And I feel like the Canadians are actually going to be pretty uh, benefited by the fact that he was signed during a flat cap situation because when escrow kind of relaxes a little bit and the cap starts going up a little bit after we get further away from the pandemic, salaries are going to go up. We saw it before this with Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, all those guys who signed for big, big deals. Not that Suzuki's comparable to Austin Matthews, but those salaries are going to keep going up, especially for the top end players. I think before the cap started to go flat, we started to see a more natural progression of the superstars being paid superstar money as opposed to when the cap first came in, there was a very like a leveling of the playing field where a $7 million player was the most you could get, but there were fourth liners that could make like $3 million, you know, and that never really made sense from a market efficiency standpoint. So I I wonder if the Canadians are going to be very benefited from Suzuki getting that contract. Now, Uh, before we, go any further with the Canadians. So there was a question for Tony saying, uh, do you think that uh, Cooley is comfortably better than Nazar uh, saying that they think it's more of a toss up and let's throw Matt Savoy in there as well, because I've heard a lot about Matt Savoy. So with those three players, the first one I'll go with is Savoy because I, I think he has the highest upside out of all of them because his skill level is just unreal. Some of the things he can do with the puck and in space is really special, but he's a five, nine center. And I think, he does work best as a center because he, he does flourish when he has that space, when he has that ability to distribute to both sides and really be a difference maker that way. But I, I have a feeling he's going to end up being pushed to the wing in the NHL, which kind of could diminish some of his impact. I think he doesn't work as well off the boards. But if this kid can be that Braden point center that I think he can be, uh, I think he could be, like I said, Braden Point, basically, right? Like, that's a great player that you'd love to have. And, and then with Logan Cooley and Frank Nazar, I think, there are two sides of a coin. I think with Nazar, you have all this flash skill, the, the dash and the cut to the middle. And he does so many of these things at a high pace, high speed, but it's not always as consistent. Whereas Cooley, I think, has that more well-rounded game. His defensive game has a little bit more purpose to it. It's not that Nazar doesn't have effort on the back end, because I do think he he's a guy that has effort in, in all three zones and in transition, especially. I think he's really, really good. But he doesn't quite know exactly what to do defensively right now. And he in the offensive zone, it, it's a little bit of the same thing. There's a little bit of I called it controlled chaos earlier in the year, but it really is just a lot of chaos sometimes. But it's productive chaos. He's always generating chances. He's developing chances for his teammates and line mates. So I think he has the higher upside of the two, but I, I do think there's a, a little bit lower of a floor with him. So for me, I have them both in my top 10, but Cooley is kind of my clear cut number two right now, just because his game is more well-rounded. He's a bit more projectable and he does have some of that flash and flair that a guy like Shane Wright doesn't necessarily bring to the game every single time. Great answer. All right. Uh, last question for you both. And then we'll close this out. Cause I don't know about you guys, but I'm tired and a little bit under the weather. I slept weird last night and now I can't raise my, can't look up very well. Cause you know, when you get old, that's all it takes. But uh, last question is 
who is your pick for the Calder Trophy? Because this is the talk of Twitter lately. And why is it not Michael Bunting? Oh, that's uh, that's a good good question. I think it's it's got it for me. It's Moritz Sider. I, I think it, I think just watching him play, I have a whole different appreciation level that um, I don't think the numbers really do justice. Um, just in terms of the point totals or, or even the the underlying numbers. Frankly, it, it's just the when you watch him play, he's almost able to single handedly impact the flow of a game, whether it's the way he's able to, for a big man, the way he skates and the way he stick handles through traffic and beats four checkers, it's really, really special to watch it. And Bunting, don't get me wrong, he's, he's a phenomenal player, but he's also had the benefit of playing alongside Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner for most of the season. So, um, I mean, I, I had Bunting as as one of my breakout players, so I, I love him in terms of at the start of the season, I thought he was going to pop. But I just feel like Sider, especially without accomplishing all of this without a high-end partner and not a lot of help around him, um, the all-around impact that he has, it's he's such a special player to watch for me. And, and so for, for me, I still kind of lean towards Sider. Yeah, as a Leafs fan, I, I am completely in agreement with you, honestly. Like, Sider <laughs> is the guy for me, 100%. Uh, he's been the guy for me for a few years now. Uh, I was really high on him his draft year. Some said it unreasonably high. Um, but he's a guy that there was so much to his game over in Germany that was not being seen because he was told when, uh, during his draft year, when he played a pro in a pro league in Germany, he was like, just play. They were like, play defense. You don't need to worry about the offensive game. You're an 18, 17 year old defenseman in this league, be six, four and play defense. So he really committed to that and p- developed this outstanding defensive game that we're seeing. So, so nuanced and so many little tiny details that he, he pulls off in the league that you're looking at him and going, man, that's a 10 year veteran move. That's not something a rookie is doing. And that's the kind of stuff Sider does. And then he's fourth in rookie scoring with 46 points. He's going to probably be a 50 point defenseman playing with largely Danny DeKaiser. And, and, and uh, I can't even remember his first name. Mark Stahl. <laughs> Mark Stahl's been there. Osterley has been there. Like it's, like no one knew who Osterley was before this season. I barely knew who he was like, <laughs> and he's playing big minutes with Mort Sider because Mort Sider's capable of that. So for me, this guy's the clear cut rookie of the year winner. Bunting's cool. He's fun. He's 45 years old too. So, and I know like <laughs> he's technically a rookie. Yes. But I, I think you do have to at least factor in the fact that he is 26. He scored his first NHL goal in 2018. Like that, that feels like that, <laughs> that should disqualify him in my opinion. But whatever, like he's he should be on the finalist ballot. But yeah, Sider's the guy. Yeah, and I I will echo you both honestly. And you know it's cheating at this point to go third and agree. But <laughs> Moritz Sider is just incredible. You watch him control games. He plays over twenty three minutes a night as a rookie <laughs> on a team without much there for a defenseman. Frankly, he's just incredible. Watch Moritz Sider reverse hit someone and tell uh, me he's not oh. r- rookie of the year. You know, it's like shades of Peter Forsberg, except for on defense. And I, I just, I remember when he was drafted, I was thinking they, that Iserman kind of went off his rocker a little bit because I thought it was like a huge reach, but I'm not a prospect guy. And clearly I was wrong. And it looked like he was like, the first thing I'm going to get for this team that I just took over is Victor Hedman, right? Victor Hedman yeah. position for the Detroit Red Wings going forward. And he just knocked it out of the park. I, I mean, obviously the scouts for Detroit as well. It wasn't all just Iserman, but uh, the GMs always get the end credit. And I, I'm with you guys. I love Michael Bunting. I think he's a fantastic hockey yeah. player, but at the end of the day, for me, 
he's a complimentary player mm-hmm. on an elite NHL line. And it's not, I'm not trying to take away from him, but he's not doing that on his own. I do think he makes Matthews and Marner both better, but that's yeah. what a great complimentary player does. And it, it would be weird, I think, to give the Calder to a complimentary player as opposed to a Lucas Raymond who's doing it on his own, you know, putting up almost as much production as Bunting has. Trevor Zegris put up just as much production as Michael Bunting has. Now, Bunting has the underlying numbers, but I think we lost to Matthews. <laughs> like, yeah. Of course he has the underlying numbers. <laughs> Yeah, All right. it's it's so weird. He, he's been such a great complimentary player, like you said, but you do look at the rest of that, the rookies in the league and you're like, Zegers has been this impact player that's putting up highlight reels all the time. Lucas Raymond has been on a tear this year, scoring more than anybody expected. And, and Moritz Sider is a number one defenseman on a team that's built of number seven defensemen. So <laughs> it, 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 I, I don't even care. Red Wings fans love me enough, I can say that. Um, but no, I think like, they know, right? Yeah. I think oh, and, yeah, and Red Wings fans are very self-aware of like the fact that they have three AHL defensemen on the roster at all times. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thank you both so much for coming on the show tonight. Uh, you made a terrible game to watch, a fun show to do. So uh, first, Tony, and then Harman, tell everybody where they can find your work. Uh, you can find all my work on the hockey news. I've been doing a lot of work on a lot of the college kids signing like Matthew Beneers and Ken Johnson, who we got to see a little bit tonight. So you can f- find all my work there and find me on Twitter at the Tony Ferrari. Yeah, you guys can uh, find my work uh, at the athletic uh, and, uh, and on Twitter, obviously at uh, Harmon dial Two. Excellent. Thanks everybody for tuning in after such a crappy game. I appreciate it so much. There's only eight games left in this <laughs> season. And soon we'll be launching game over Toronto and Calgary and Edmonton for sure. We're going through the audition tapes right now at SDPN. We have a meeting scheduled for Monday evening. We're going to have some big announcements coming up soon. So stay tuned and uh, we'll see you again on Friday for maybe Carrie Price's first game in like what? 11 months. That's exciting. There's something to look forward to still in this, this season. That's fun.